Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hi again, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Across the Street. Today, I am super excited to have with me one of my VA hospitalist colleagues, Dr. Lindsay Wu. For those of you that have not had a chance to meet her yet, she went to Duke for medical school and is originally from the Triangle, left us for a short while to go to UCSF for residency and then the Brigham for hospitalist work for a few years before she came back home and joined our group. She is very interested in inpatient teaching and takes a particular interest in diagnosis diagnostic uncertainty while in that role. Dr. Wu, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Okay, so today we're going to talk about diagnostic uncertainty. So it's most interesting to start off with a case. So that's what we're going to do today. So I want everybody to sort of imagine that they are on GenMed at the VA and they are taking care of a 55-year-old patient who has HIV. We'll say that this patient was admitted several days ago for hypoxia and sepsis and was complaining of loose stools at the time of admission. They were diagnosed with a Klebsiella pneumonia, treated with targeted antibiotics for several days, and the sepsis seemed to resolve, but the hypoxia never really did. On hospital day four, this patient again started to have high fevers, and now we're not sure what our next move is. And this is where the diagnostic uncertainty plays in. Is it possible that our initial diagnosis was wrong? Was the diagnosis correct, but the treatment incorrect? Was there a, a second diagnosis that we completely missed? Uh, Dr. Wu, let's start off with your approach. Yeah, so I, I guess it's helpful maybe to start off with just a definition of diagnostic uncertainty, which is just the subjective perception of really not knowing what a patient has. And it's really something that's inherent in internal medicine. For many of us, I think it is actually what makes medicine challenging and fun every day. Uncertainty changes throughout a hospital course as we gather new information. So for patients that are initially coming in and have difficult to diagnose conditions, especially those patients that are presenting with a new issue and tell a clear history, often we recognize the diagnostic dilemma right from the start. So those cases require excellent clinical reasoning and they're fun to solve. But I think the trickier scenario and actually the more common one is when we think we know what's going on at, at admission, but as the hospital course evolves, we gather more information that points away from that initial diagnosis. And sometimes that happens because we didn't have a good history to begin with, or because we anchored on a prior diagnosis in a patient's chart. And often it happens even when our initial thinking and treatment was completely appropriate. So I think the important thing is that we acknowledge and address that uncertainty when new information comes back and doesn't fit, whether that's you know, new collateral from a patient's family or a negative urine culture that we thought would be positive, or as in this case, a lack of response to treatment. Okay, so acknowledging diagnostic uncertainty is important. So why don't we do it more often? That's a great question. There's so many reasons we don't do it regularly. I think for many of us, it's culturally ingrained in us not to do that. So at some point in our training or practice, we were taught to prioritize certainty over curiosity. You know, at case conferences, we celebrate that person that gets the zebra diagnosis right from the start, or we ask students to be confident and to put their nickel down. And all of this leads to worry that if we acknowledge uncertainty, that will be seen as weak by our peers or patients or our trainees as an attending. And in addition to these cultural pieces, acknowledging uncertainty just takes effort, both in terms of time and mental dedication. And so with high patient volumes and competing tasks, sometimes it just doesn't take precedence. 
Yeah, you know, you're making me think about my own practice, and I can't tell you how many times I've asked somebody to put their nickel down, but I wonder if by the end of this, you'll have convinced me not to do that, at least not so often. So what happens if we don't acknowledge diagnostic uncertainty as often as we should? So I think the most obvious and dreaded consequence of not acknowledging it is diagnostic error, which can obviously lead to incorrect treatments and bad outcomes for patients. I think what really made me start to be interested in diagnostic uncertainty was when I learned how not addressing it could actually negatively impact trainees and also the health system. So studies have actually found that physicians who are less comfortable with uncertainty or have anxiety when uncertainty comes up are more likely to experience burnout. So intolerance of uncertainty has been directly associated with our wellness and our enjoyment of our job. Intolerance of uncertainty has also been associated with inappropriate resource use, like unnecessary tests and consults when a diagnosis is unclear. And reflecting back on my personal practice, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think sometimes if I am uncertain, but don't have time to flesh out that uncertainty, the knee-jerk reaction is to sometimes order more or consult more when I, I don't necessarily need to yet. And lastly, it's been associated with an increased reliance on heuristics or cognitive biases. So that's something we obviously want to avoid as well that can then lead to diagnostic error. In addition, one more thing, when uncertainty is present but not addressed with patients, that can actually negatively impact the patient-physician relationship. So that's one other reason to address it. Okay, so let's talk about the case again. So We'll say he was diagnosed with a Klebsiella pneumonia and initially was treated with cefepime, but then narrowed to Augmentin earlier on hospital day four. The plan was to restart IV antibiotics if he spiked a fever. And on hospital day four, during our cross cover, he spikes a fever again. And now we're not sure what to do. It looks like the antibiotic transition had happened about eight hours prior to this fever. And it looks like in a little bit more chart digging in real time, this patient's last CD4 count was say 150. and heart was restarted about six weeks prior to the admission, but this patient has had multiple hospitalizations at multiple different hospitals due to various psychosocial issues that delayed his ability to start his HIV therapies. Dr. Wu, cross-covering this patient overnight, how certain were you of the diagnosis at that point, and were there any red flags that you were looking for that could have raised suspicion for diagnostic error? I was cross-covering this patient. I think I would be very uncertain about what was going on. Um, and I think recognizing that was would be for, sort of the first step. Uh, it's very helpful that sign outs telling me to restart IV antibiotics if he spikes. But I think as you noted earlier, that antibiotic switch had only happened eight hours ago. So that alone explaining a new fever spike to 102.5 doesn't feel like a solid enough explanation for me. I think in addition, you mentioned several other points of his medical history that could raise suspicion for a second diagnosis. So he is quite immunocompromised, I think, uh, with a CD4 count of about 150. And recently restarting heart therapy, you know, raises another potential list of diagnoses or things that could be going on. So I think we have a patient where maybe the initial diagnosis was right, but now possibly something else could be going on. The other important thing, though, I think many aspects of his history raised a few red flags that I look for when I am trying to assess how at risk a patient is for diagnostic error. So in this patient, it sounds like he had many psychosocial issues, and we know that patients with you know, active psychiatric disease or a history of psychiatric disease are more at risk for diagnostic error. We think that might be because, you know, sometimes uh, 
new medical conditions are inappropriately attributed to their psychiatric disease or potentially attributed to them not taking medicines as they as they should because of their psychiatric disease and we're more likely to miss something else new happening and you know dr Wu, that's such an important point because we know that the life expectancy of patients with certain psychiatric diagnoses is shorter because of all of the reasons that you just discussed i think you know another reason that patients with psychiatric disease might be more at risk of diagnostic errors that sometimes due to their psychiatric disease, they're unable to give as clear of a history. I think sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes the issue is on the provider that the provider doesn't elicit this history in the same way that they may in someone without psychiatric disease. So that is one big red flag of just wanting to go back and make sure I had all the details of this story right. Another big red flag that I heard was that this patient had multiple recent hospitalizations at different hospitals. And whenever a patient is representing again and again with either the same or versions of the same diagnosis, we have to start thinking about how certain really are we that we're getting this diagnosis right. So all of those reasons would both make me question why he was spiking overnight and whether or not the initial diagnosis was actually the clear reason for his presentation. I actually like to refer to a list of patient risk factors for diagnostic error whenever I'm starting to think about diagnostic uncertainty. Dr. Caputo will post this diagnostic timeout card that I often use as a reference, which lists some of these patient level factors. So these include multiple visits prior to admission or recent readmissions limited history or physical exam, and that might be because of altered mental status. Right now, that's often because a patient is on isolation precautions or potentially because there's a language barrier. Undifferentiated symptoms such as abdominal pain or shortness of breath make patients more at risk of diagnostic error. No clear triggers for exacerbation of chronic disease. As we mentioned, a comorbid psychiatric disease or personality disorder multiple transitions, so inter-hospital transfers, transfers between teams or services, multiple consultants or team members that all have differing opinions, a response to treatment that's not going as expected, and so that's certainly the case in this patient, unexpected events such as, you know, unexpected rapid responses or codes, and very importantly, uh, another risk factor is are when patients themselves have concerns about their diagnosis or are questioning whether or not that diagnosis is correct. So Dr. Wu, then what do we do if we find ourselves in a position of diagnostic uncertainty? So I think the first step is just to call it out. You know, recognizing uncertainty is the most important first step in, in terms of avoiding a diagnostic error. But also having a systematic way to tackle that uncertainty can make providers just more comfortable and more willing to address it. And I still reference a diagnostic timeout that I created in conjunction with a team at Brigham. And it essentially helps me take a step back and indulge in that sort of system to thinking, going through the patient history again in a very systematic way. When I go through this diagnostic timeout, for some patients, it's actually quite appropriate to do that in the room. The patients can add a lot of valuable information. And if I don't feel comfortable doing it in the room, or if the trainees don't feel comfortable doing it in the room, we always go back and communicate with the patient after the fact. So the first step is just to name the primary working diagnosis. And I asked myself, could the patient have a different understanding of this diagnosis? The next step is just to identify what does and doesn't fit. So really going back to you know step one when the patient came in and what signs and symptoms are unexplained at this point. Step three is just to discuss alternative diagnoses. So I asked myself if there could be a variation of a common disease 
in this patient, could there be multiple diagnoses? He certainly could be at risk of multiple diagnoses, or could we be looking at a complication of treatment? And we always ask ourselves, like, have we really ruled out the don't miss diagnoses at this point? Step four, which is really the most important actionable step, is to identify potential gaps in the diagnostic process and consider changes to plan. And this does not always include getting that CT scan or consulting rheumatology. Often it involves revisiting historical and clinical data with the patient and with any collateral you can get your hands on. So if the patient does have a hard time giving a clear history, talking to family caregivers if the patient's okay with it, or talking to their primary care doctors to understand what might have been a longer trajectory than you initially thought to the patient's presentation. And as part of that step, we sort of identify, okay, for the next steps today, we will, you know, whether it's just call this patient's mother and get a better history in terms of the last six months, or talk to the patient's PCP and see what their concerns are. And sometimes that next step is to order that additional test or scan. And the last step for the diagnostic timeout is to communicate diagnostic uncertainty. And this includes communication between ourselves, between providers, especially in our documentation, so that that cross-covering provider overnight knows that we're not certain so that they can help us and, and think through the case themselves if, if it evolves overnight. So I love this process for a lot of different reasons, including how open and honest it is and also how cost conscious it is. I think it would, if we went through this really systematically, it would probably prevent a lot of unnecessary scans and tests and radiating of patients. Can I ask you a question about this? Yeah. Okay. So in your experience, how has it gone when you have disclosed this uncertainty or done this exercise in front of the patient? Do you find that it improves your relationship with them? I imagine that one of the hesitations to doing this is that we would be concerned that the patient might lose faith in us. Is that the experience that you've had or is it the opposite? You know, I think most physicians would share that concern um, and I do too many times and I do not always discuss it with the patients, but actually like the data has shown that discussing uncertainty with patients actually strengthens that provider-patient relationship. So I, I would say on a practical basis, I often ask the patient if it would be something that they'd be open to and if they would like us to go through this time out in the room with them when it's a patient that is engaged and uh, you know wants to contribute to that history. And actually even patients that maybe part of our concern is that like they haven't given the best history to begin with. It can be very helpful in those situations because sometimes they're actually able to clarify in the moment once they see this discussion happening. So another reason, I guess, discussing uncertainty with patients engages them in the diagnostic process, which then can reveal key historical information to the case just right then and there. It is important to say that with diagnostic uncertainty, even if you're uncertain, you should still have a very clear plan about the next steps moving forward. And I think that is something that takes practice, especially while you're still in training. So sometimes these next steps might be a set of tests. It could be a time trial of an empiric therapy with a clear endpoint. So it's important when you're communicating this diagnostic uncertainty that you actually let the patient know what these next steps are what your anticipated plan is, you know, if the outcome is either A or B, so that they still have confidence in you as a physician, even though they understand that there's uncertainty about the diagnosis. 
Those are really helpful tips. And I think that the openness with communication with patients is probably applicable even when there's not diagnostic uncertainty. One of the things that patients are most frustrated with in the hospital often is when they don't know the plan and they don't understand what's going on. And I bet that a lot of this exercise is helpful for our patient provider relationship just because of that openness and that communication. Yeah, exactly. I think the mistrust develops when you don't understand uncertainty, because when that diagnosis is wrong later on, and they later understand that you actually were uncertain previously, then there's, you know, an issue with trust. But when they understand your thought process from the beginning, it actually builds that relationship. That's so wise. Do you have any other tips for us for communicating diagnostic uncertainty? I think what I would say is actually finding the language that's comfortable to you and practicing it can make it feel much easier. For me, just using the word uncertain sort of like makes me realize that I'm in that space, that it's time to take a step back and to evaluate, you know, where might we be going wrong and what other data do we need? I think it's really important for attendings to model this as much as they can, because this is a hard, for all the reasons I mentioned about like what's been culturally ingrained to us, this it's very hard to ask a medical student to start by mo- modeling diagnostic uncertainty or even a resident. So as much as we can at the attending level model this, I think it will only help our trainees feel more comfortable with it and learn clinical reasoning. Yeah, that's a great point. And you've definitely convinced me that this can be really useful. So I'm going to challenge myself and anybody who's listening who rounds with me on GEDMED next can keep me honest here. I'm going to try and do one of these uh, on my next rounding. So thank you, Dr. Wu, for this wisdom and for joining us today. This was a really interesting conversation. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And for everybody listening uh, at Duke, the references that we talked about this podcast will be on your curriculum website. So please look there to see Dr. Wu's algorithm for a diagnostic timeout and for some of the references that we discussed. As always, the opinions discussed today are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Durham VA or the Veterans Health Administration.